Well, today, today I'm all alone. Today I'm all alone. Okay. Um, I'll be talking about something today that I'm sure most of y'all probably cannot relate to because I know y'all. Um, I think I know most of y'all well enough to say that. Um, I, I don't know that you can relate to this because I'm sure most of you have never had any doubt about what God was doing around you, right? <laughs> y'all good at sarcasm? That was it. Okay. For those of you who missed it, um, Maybe, maybe you guys have had doubts, um, because I think, I think everybody who's thinking has had a doubt at some point or another. Um, I think most people have had questions, at the very least, questions about what are you doing, God? Where are you in this? I think everybody who's really thinking has probably had a doubt or a question, something that they have wrestled with and just not understood at all. Um, I know I certainly have, and I'm sure that the vast majority of you probably have also. But the thing is, um, when we have those moments, those moments of those questions, not understanding, or even doubts, um, what we need to realize is that it's an opportunity. Um, It's an opportunity for our growth, um, for God to show us something about who he is that we hadn't known before. Uh, we can learn new things about God. And the reason I say I'm sure most people have probably had questions or, or doubts is because today what we're going to read is that even John the Baptist, somebody that close to Jesus, had questions. He was unsure of what was going on in, uh, if, in my opinion, maybe even some doubt, um, some real doubt. So that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that Jesus, he addresses both John in his questioning, in his doubts, and helps John to grow, but also addresses the crowd around him and uses John's question as an opportunity for everyone to grow. So that's what we're going to see this as today. We're going to see this as an opportunity for us to grow because of John's question. And we're going to do this as we begin a new series today. Um, I know this is a different backdrop than we've had for the last couple months. Uh, Today we're going to start to see the opposition against Jesus rise. Um, this op- opposition to Jesus and his teaching and the advance of the kingdom, we're really going to see an uptick in that opposition. So that's what I want us to see as we begin this. Um, and we're going to see this opposition come not just from the outside, not just from those people who are uh, just blatantly opposed to Jesus. We're going to see some of this opposition rise from internally. And I'm not just talking about Judas. Now, obviously, most of you who have been around the church for any amount of time, you know Judas was some real opposition to Jesus at some point. Um, Judas lost in that, but we still see, know that Judas was in opposition. But here, even John, John had questions. John had doubts. And hopefully, through this series, we'll learn not just how Jesus dealt with the opposition, but we can learn how we can deal with the opposition we face today. So, I know that may seem difficult, but I, I hope that we see that it serves a purpose in advancing the kingdom. Um, and I, I came to this in a time where I know our community, um, both in Mount City, but especially in Oregon, the Oregon community has really been struggling and maybe uncertain of what's going on. And God, why is this happening here and now? Um, there are certainly questions and possibly for some, even some doubts. Um, what do we do with those questions? How do we respond to those questions? Now, I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers because you all know I don't. Um, But I think we do see what to do with some of those questions and how we can respond. Um, I'd like it if we could read God's word today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Would you all stand with me out of respect for reading God's word? 
And if you're following along, and I hope that you are, I say this about every week. I say, if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, I, I want you to know, I really do hope you have a Bible with you. If you do not have a Bible, I will give you a Bible. I will make sure you have a Bible. I want you to have one that you can read, that you can know, that you can start writing in and scribbling in and making notes in so that you understand God's Word. I want you to know God's Word. So if you don't have a Bible, let me know. I'm going to make sure you get a Bible, okay? Um, that's the least I can do. Now, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible today. It says, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. So as we come to this, this passage here, we're coming on the heels of what we've seen Jesus do, right? He commissioned his disciples out to go and to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to preach the good news. So they've been sent out to do all of this. And then we get this, this fun transitional statement, which is why we're going to start a new series here in verse 1. He gives his disciples orders to send them out. And then he went out and did exactly the same thing. He went out to preach and teach, right? So he goes out to do what he sent his disciples to do. I always find it interesting that he doesn't send him out to do something he either hasn't done or wasn't willing to do himself. He was doing that alongside them. He was going with them. So he didn't ask them to do something he couldn't or wouldn't do. And this is where we get John's question. We get this transition here, and then we get John's question. And we learn some things about the question. First, it came while John was in prison. Right? John had been arrested at this point, so he is sitting in a dungeon. He's sitting in a prison cell, and he sends out some messengers to Jesus to ask him this question. And he asks because he's heard some of the works that Jesus was doing. But the question is interesting. He says, are you the one who is to come? What he's asking here, make no mistake, what he's saying is, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah we've been waiting for? 
Are you the one or should we expect someone else? Now, think, think about this question for a moment and think about who's asking it. Y'all, this is John the Baptist. The same John who, if you go back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you'll read and you'll find that John, before he was ever born, demonstrated some kind of faith. I mean, he's in his mother's womb and Mary shows up and shares the good news of being pregnant with Jesus and John leaps inside of his mother's womb. This John, who is now questioning Jesus, are you the one who is to come? This is the John the Baptist who is out in the wilderness, this wild guy out here wearing the camel hair garments and eating bugs and stuff, this weirdo out here in the wilderness. And by the way, I told you all, you are weird, so that's good. That's a compliment. Um, So it's this weirdo out here telling people, look, there is another one who's going to come after me, and I'm not even fit to untie his sandals, something that the lowest slave wouldn't be asked to do. I'm not worthy to do that. And then he sees Jesus come and says, look, the Lamb of God. And he says, this guy is the one I'm not even good enough to get down and untie his sandals. John said this about Jesus, and now he's saying, Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for somebody else? John, this man of faith, he had questions. He didn't get it. He was still unsure of what was happening. So just remember that whenever we hear this. Why did John have this question, this faithful man? Why did he have this question? And I think the answer is that he was dealing with some missed expectations. He had some expectations of what this Messiah was supposed to be, what the one who is to come was supposed to be. And Jesus wasn't meeting all those expectations. See, if Jesus was the Christ, then John might be thinking while he's sitting here in this prison cell, why am I still behind bars? Why am I still locked away? If Jesus is the authority, the Messiah, the one who's to come, why am I still in prison? He might be thinking, why hasn't the Roman government been overthrown? Jesus, you've been ministering for some time now. Why are we not seeing an advance against the Roman government? Why haven't the Jewish people been brought to prominence yet? Why are we still subjugated to the Romans? Why? John's dealing with some real struggles, some real pain, some real questions. Like difficult questions. It's not like John was living in the lap of luxury being like, well, Jesus, I'm not real sure. Let's have a theological debate about this. John's sitting in a prison cell saying, what's going on? This isn't what we expected. Now, Jesus' response, I think, is fantastic because he does something that that the Father, God the Father, does all the way back in Job. Um, And I know I've talked about this before because I think it's a little bit funny, actually. Um, Job, throughout the, the book of Job, he's asking for an audience with God. Like, just let me, let me plead my case before God. Like, this, this clearly isn't fair. This isn't right. All the stuff I've had to deal with. Just give me an audience with God. And then whenever God shows up, I, I, think, I think it's so funny. He basically says, who are you? Where were you whenever I put everything in place? Jesus does something similar here. Jesus does something similar here. He doesn't directly answer the question that John asked. But what he does is he gives a response that is so grand, so big, that it encompasses what John has asked. Just like God does back in Job. So I I absolutely love that. So I think as we look at this question, though, and the response that Jesus gives, it demonstrates not only the answer to John's question, but it teaches us some things on what we can do when we have questions. And that's what I want us to see today. These lessons that we can learn when John John asks this question. What lessons can we learn? And the first thing I think we can learn is that Jesus, Jesus teaches here. Jesus teaches that his works declare his identity. His works declare his identity. He doesn't have to tell John, yes, I'm the Messiah, because he goes and he says, look at what I'm doing. Don't you see it? Don't you get it? 
Jesus looks at these disciples who came to ask this question from John, and he turns to them and he says, all right, John's got that question. Go tell John this. He says, go tell him this. Tell him that the blind receive their sight. And we've already talked about this, right? A man blind from birth comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, Lord heal me. Like he asks for help. And Jesus, he, he says, okay. And he spits on the ground, stirs it together into mud, puts that mud on the blind man's eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam and then come uh, and you'll be clean. You'll be healed, right? So the man does it. And what happens? His sight's restored. Jesus says, go tell John that the blind receive their sight. He says, tell them that the lame walk. And there are several accounts of this happening. And we, we know these accounts, right? Think about the man who was carried by his friends to Jesus. And there's such a crowd around Jesus that they couldn't even get up to Jesus. So they go up on the roof. They start tearing tiles away, literally ripping the roof off the house to get their friend to Jesus. And they lower him down. And Jesus looks at him and sees the faith of his friends. And he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And what does this lame man do? This man who hasn't been able to walk. He gets up, he takes his mat, and he goes home. Yeah, the lame walk. Jesus says, tell John that the blind see, that the lame men walk. Tell him that lepers are cleansed. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. Leprosy was a death sentence. You were outcast in society. You had to sit outside. Somebody comes near you. You put your head down and say, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. Stay away. These people who have been ostracized by society, who are outcasts, and now they're sitting here just waiting to die. Jesus says, go tell John that they are cleansed and that they are healed. We made a big deal out of this about how Jesus touches the untouchable. He does things that you're not supposed to do, and he cleanses lepers. That was impossible. And Jesus does that. He says, go tell John, blind see, lame walk, lepers are cleansed. Tell John that. He wants to know, am I the one to come? Go tell him that. And the deaf hear. Not only did Jesus cast out this mute demon, and if you remember, we talked about how that was, there was a chance at least that they were unable to hear. He says, I've restored healing. He says, the dead are raised. And we think about the little girl who was dead, and Jesus comes, and he gives her life. And it also foreshadows us to Lazarus, one of my favorite, one of my favorite accounts in the whole Bible, right? Lazarus is dead and in the grave for four days, and they're all afraid to move the stone away from the tomb because they're like, it's going to stink in there because he's already decaying and rotting. And Jesus says, move it anyway. He steps up to the, to the mouth of this tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And this dead guy gets up and walks out of the tomb. Jesus says, go tell, go tell John about that. Yeah, why don't you go tell John about that? See if he still has questions then. And he says, the poor are told the good news. And this is happening all over the place where lowly, downcast, on the margins of society, these people are being told the good news and they're repenting and being ushered into the kingdom. Y'all, this is what Jesus says. Go tell John that. Why would Jesus point to all these works? I think it's pretty simple. Jesus works what he did. It declares his identity. He didn't have to say, I am the Messiah. He says, look at what I've done, and that will show you who I am. Of course I'm the one to come. Look at what's happening. So rhetorically, he is saying, I am the Messiah. But then he says this interesting thing in verse 6, right? This interesting line in verse 6 where he says, Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. He just listed all these good works. Why would anybody be offended by that? Isn't that good news? Like, why would somebody be offended by Jesus? Well, I think the answer is because he was doing socially unacceptable things. These were not things that people wanted others doing. And what's more, the Jewish people wanted a political Messiah. 
They had a very specific thing that they were looking for in a Messiah. Somebody to come, free the Jewish people from the Romans, overthrow them. They wanted a military leader. So they would be upset or even outraged by somebody who came in and claimed to be the Messiah and didn't do what they expected. Or think about somebody who came in claiming power from God but didn't bring the Jewish people back to the prominence that they thought they, thought they, thought they deserved. They were offended by that. So Jesus says, into this backdrop, he says, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Why would they be blessed? Well, because they see the blessed one for who he is, not for what they want him to be. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. They see a savior for who he is, and they repent and they follow after him. And this brings a greater blessing than they were seeking after, right? This brings a blessing of being saved from their sins. The point is, whenever we have questions, we can trust Jesus for who he's shown us that he is. Even when we have those questions. Even in the midst of those questions. We may not understand or things may not go exactly as we expect. But we can thank God that Jesus shows us who he is. He shows us. He demonstrates who he is. And because of that, the one who believes and isn't offended because of those missed expectations, they will be blessed. They will be blessed because they see him for who he is. So Jesus teaches that his works declare his identity. Second, Jesus teaches that greatness is measured by witness. Greatness is measured by witness here. Verse 7, it says, As these men were leaving, so these messengers are leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. Notice, he's not speaking to the messengers anymore now. It's like, okay, you guys go tell John all this stuff that I'm doing right now. Now I'm going to talk to you all. Like, he's turning his attention to them. He starts speaking to the crowds, and he's speaking to them about John. I I love this. Jesus starts defending John. The same John who just questioned his identity, he now starts defending John. Okay? Notice, that's who he's talking about. And he asks this series of what I believe to be rhetorical questions because he answers them himself. He asks this series of questions, right? He says... What did you go out to the wilderness to see? What did you go to see? A reed swaying in the wind. Look, what this is, this is a picture of somebody being wishy-washy, kind of all over the place, back and forth, no firm ground. Instead, they're just blowing all over the place, just going wherever the winds are taking them. That's, that's what this picture is. In other words, they're not holding fast to their beliefs, but somebody who might believe something, but it's weak and superficial. He says, that's, is that what you went out to see? Somebody who had no real conviction about this? And again, because Jesus is defending John, what he's saying is that even though John has questions, he has been steadfast from the beginning. He was rooted. He was grounded. He wasn't blown all over the place. He stayed with me this whole time. John is not some reed blowing in the wind. And then he says in verse 8, he says, what then did you go out to see? If it wasn't a reed swaying in the wind, somebody who was going to tell you what you wanted to hear, if that's not what you went out to see, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? (laughs) Y'all remember what John wore. Camel hair garments and a leather belt, definitely not soft clothes. Um, but this, this, this soft clothing, it was, uh, it was an indication of personal softness or even effeminacy in the language. So I, I think that this is humorous, and I think Jesus is actually using a little bit of humor here, even as he's talking about this. Because at the end of verse 8, he says, those who wear soft clothes live in royal palaces. Uh, some scholars believe he's taken jabs at John's captors. Almost like he's saying, uh, did you go out to the wilderness to see some girly boy like those who arrested John and imprisoned him? Is that what you went out to see? Jesus is taking shots. (laughs) I love it. 
He said, no, you didn't go out because he was something special or because he dressed fancy or because he was real charismatic. That's not what you went out for. That's not why you were there. You went out because he was different. What was it about John that you went out to see? Why did you go see John? If he wasn't fancy, he wasn't just telling you anything that you wanted to hear. Why did you go see John? Because he was a prophet? Yes. You went to see John because he told you what God had to say to you. That's why you went to hear what John had. And he says, but not just a prophet, more than a prophet. He says, John was different. As a matter of fact, verse 14 says that he was the Elijah who was to come. John was different from the other prophets. See, John was the forerunner to the Messiah. He had a special purpose in redemptive history to prepare the way for Messiah. And he goes, uh, he actually goes back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 here, where, he says, where it says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then in Malachi 4, 5, it specifically refers to the prophet Elijah. And Jesus says, that's John. That's who he is. So what he's doing is he's showing how great John was. He's saying, look how great John was. He was more than just a prophet. But then something interesting happens in verse 11. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what Jesus just said is no person up to now, up to the time of Jesus, he says no person was greater than John. Now understand, with the Jewish backdrop, what Jesus just said. He just said that John the Baptist was greater than Abraham, that John was greater than Moses, he was greater than Elijah, he was greater than David, he was greater than anybody before him, anyone. And if you're a Jewish person, like, read the Bible, it doesn't take long to figure out, Abraham's a big deal. Abraham is a really big deal. John's greater, Jesus says. Moses, I mean, just think about who Moses was. And the interactions he had with God. The guy wrote the first five books of the Bible. Like, that Moses most likely wrote the first five books of the Bible. Somebody's going to argue with me if I just say he did. Okay, most likely. Most scholars agree Moses probably wrote the first five books of the Bible. Okay. John's greater. If you're a Jewish person, Jesus just made a huge statement. And we get it. We know that John had a special place in history. He prepared the way for Messiah. Well, if that's the case, how then is the least in the kingdom greater than him? Like, John's that great. How is the least in the kingdom greater than him? And in what way is John great? Well, I, I would like to attempt to answer both those questions, um, and we're going to answer them in reverse order. First, we're going to look at John's greatness, then how the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Okay. Um, so, in what way is John greater than anyone before him? Verse 12 begins to give us an answer. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. Now, that's a fine translation. It's not my favorite. However, NIV says something very similar. It says the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Um, but there's a funny verb there that can be translated one of two ways, depending on which tense you want to accept it in. The more common understanding of that verb and the tense that it's written in here, the more common understanding would make this translated that the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent men have been seizing it by force. Which gives us a picture of what's been happening. The kingdom of heaven, 
Jesus says, has been advancing. And it hasn't just been advancing. It has been advancing forcefully. Like, with power behind it. The kingdom of heaven didn't, wasn't ushered in in some small way or some quiet way. It was forcefully advancing to this point. He says, we are going forward with force. And remember, the reason I say maybe it hasn't been suffering violence is just what we talked about a couple weeks ago. At this point, there is no evidence of widespread persecution against Jesus' followers. There's no evidence of widespread persecution. So saying it has been suffering violence, maybe not. But there are those who opposed it still. Sure, of course there were. John's in prison. Clearly there are those who oppose the kingdom of heaven. And those, but see, here's the fun part. Those who tried to silence the kingdom and its advance only serve to further its advance. And Jesus shows us that it just serves to further its advance. As a matter of fact, if you, if you don't think that's true, just think about the biggest opposition to Jesus anywhere. They tried to kill him. You know what that did to the kingdom? <laughs> yeah, that just brought its advance in a way that they could not have understood. The kingdom advanced forcefully, even when those, like John's captors, opposed it. And I think this is the truth. This is why Tertullian, um, he was an author in the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D., this is why he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Even amongst opposition, the church will advance. The kingdom will advance. And the greatness of John, the greatness is because the kingdom has been forcefully advancing to this pivotal moment in history. It's been advancing to this pivotal moment that John, that Jesus is talking about here. This moment, Jesus says. The Messiah came, he lived, he died, and he was resurrected. And because of that, Jesus says he was great. In other words, John's greatness is a result of his nearness to Christ. His greatness is a result of his nearness to Christ. Okay, so he's about as close as anybody gets, right? So then, how is the least in the kingdom greater than John? How is the least in the kingdom greater than John? Well, I would say just like John, it's because of their nearness to Christ. Their nearness to Christ. Our nearness to Christ. See, verse 13, it says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. In other words, everything in the Old Testament, everything from Genesis to Malachi, everything in the Old Testament in a prophetic way pointed us forward to Jesus. That's who the book is about. In case you didn't know that, you're reading, you're reading Exodus, and you're like, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? It has everything to do with Jesus. It's pointing us forward to the Savior that we need. Everything in the Old Testament should, in some way, lead us to Christ. That's what Jesus says. The Old Testament pointed forward to him. And living after these events, living after the events of the Old Testament, living after the events of John, and even after the events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, living after those events, we see more clearly than anybody before what God was doing in history. And because of that, the least in the kingdom can say that they are greater than John, or Jesus can say that the least in the kingdom are greater than John. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, living after the crucial revelatory and eschatological events, the least point to Jesus still more unambiguously than John. And that's a lot of big words. What Carson is saying here is because of our place in history, because of where we stand in history and what, we, what he calls this new era, we can point more clearly to Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection than anybody before that. We have, we have a, a perspective on what Christ did that is different. We can point to him more clearly. Assuming that this understanding is correct of what Jesus is saying here, it means that the ability to magnify Christ is a clear determinant of greatness in the kingdom. Our ability to magnify Christ 
is the determining factor in greatness in the kingdom. Carson, again, he says, clear witness to Christ before men is not only a requirement of the kingdom. You remember we talked about that here a while back in chapter 10, verses 32 to 33. Proclaim me before men, I'll proclaim you before my father. Jesus says proclaiming him is a clear, it's, it's necessary, it's a requirement of the kingdom. And it's a command of the resurrected Lord that we'll get to here eventually, whenever we get to Matthew 28. Uh, the Great Commission, go therefore make disciples of all nations, point people to Jesus. But, but it is the true greatness of a disciple. Our greatness doesn't lie in who we are or what we do. It lies in pointing to a Savior who is greater than us. And we can point more clearly. The least in the kingdom can point more clearly to Jesus and his work. That's why they're great. And for that reason, we have an opportunity to be greater witnesses of Christ. So Jesus teaches that greatness is measured by witness. Third, Jesus teaches that wisdom is defined by obedience. Wisdom is defined by obedience. Okay. I've known people, and for the sake of transparency, I'll admit, um, I have been one of these people um, who have had questions, and at times even some doubts, and I've allowed those questions and doubts to allow me to slip into sin. And I'm not going to make light of that and say, well, I know everybody has had those moments of weakness. No, it's sin, and it's not okay. And I know that. So, yes, I deeply regret those mistakes, allowing my questions, even my doubts to lead me to sin. That's just foolish is what that is. Um, So then, what should we do whenever we have those doubts? Where do we look for answers? And the answer is we look to Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus says, To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to each other, We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. This is Jesus' um, not-so-polite way of saying, Stop being children. Like, stop acting like children. Grow up a little bit. See, things are not always going to go the way that you want them to go. They're not. Things are not always going to go the way I think they should go. I've learned that the hard way. I think I'm pretty smart. I'm not smart enough to know everything that's coming, though. And I've learned that again and again and again. And I didn't tell Steve this was coming. Um, But what I've learned is that not everything revolves around me. And by the way, not everything revolves around you. Difficult things happen. Um, But that's the thing. It's not all about you. See, that's, that's one of our big problems. We, we are exceedingly self-centered. Um, and I say that it, with as much compassion as possible. I'm just being honest. Like, we are all self-interested. Somewhat naturally. We all have self-interest. And we look out for number one, right? Oh, yeah, we do. Very naturally we do. What Jesus is saying here is, look, yeah, hard things happen. Hard things happen. Stop acting like a child and understand it's not all about people turning and looking at you or catering to you or things happening for you. Don't get me wrong. Jesus cares. But you are not the center of history. He is. He is. Verse 18, he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. 
the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus is saying, look, people are going to have assumptions about what you should do in any given circumstance. In any difficult circumstance, easy circumstance, people are going to have opinions about how you should live. People are going to have, have assumptions about what you, how you should respond to life circumstances. Sure they will. But you, in other words, those who follow Jesus, those who follow Jesus should act according to the wisdom that God gives. They should be different. John and Jesus, now, I think this is interesting, they did exactly opposite things, right? And that's what he says. He says, we did the exact opposite things. He came and he was fasting. I came and I'm feasting. He came and he didn't drink anything. And I came and I drank. Okay, so how, what are you getting at here, Jesus? What Jesus is saying is, do what the time calls for and use the wisdom that God gives. Now, where do we get that wisdom? I think the easiest answer is his word. We go to the Bible and we use what it teaches as a guide. But does the Bible answer every single question to every circumstance we face? The answer is no. So we use the wisdom that God gives us in those moments. So what does this look like um, in real life? Um, Here's one that many of you won't ever have to face, but I think it illustrates the point, okay? I, I think about, um, since we're in church, we'll talk about a missionary. Um, y'all familiar with Jim and Elizabeth Elliot? Y'all familiar with them? Many of you are, some of you maybe not. Um, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, they were, uh, they were missionaries to Ecuador, to Ecuador, okay? Um, so they and their 10-month-old daughter are living in Ecuador when Jim and four other men approached the Aka tribe. Um, I think some, sometimes they were called the Harani tribe. Um, but they, they approached the Aka tribe in Ecuador. And Elizabeth and her 10-month-old daughter were left without Jim because he was killed as they approached this tribe. He was killed in Ecuador. Okay? Now, if I'll just be honest with you. If Elizabeth and her daughter were a part of our church... And they asked me, what should I do? I would probably advise them to come home. I probably would. But do you know what Elizabeth Elliot did? She stayed in Ecuador. Not just for a month or two, for years and years working in Ecuador. Alongside some others. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, because she chose to stay in Ecuador would later have the opportunity to go back to the very same tribe that murdered her husband and proclaim the gospel to them. Um, I, I, I'm just going to read the way that Jim and Elizabeth's 10-month-old daughter. Now, obviously, she's not 10-month-old whenever she wrote this, but she was left without a father when she was 10 months old. This is what she writes about this. Um, her name is Valerie, in case you were wondering. She said, Even though my father and his fellow missionaries' lives were taken, their work among the Aka Indians was far from over. My mother and other missionaries picked up where they left off, living and working among her husband's murderers. God used her obedience and faithfulness to ultimately reach and transform the tribe for Jesus Christ. Y'all think about that. These people, this tribe of people, had the opportunity to receive Christ, to be forgiven of their sins, and have their eternal destination changed from hell to heaven. Because Elizabeth Elliot did something that I would advise her not to do. What does this mean, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds? What does this mean? 
I think it's by obedience to what God has called you to do. Now, I'm not trying to be super subjective. Understand that. I, I don't want to fall into some kind of relativism where it's like, do whatever God tells you all the time, because I know that's a dangerous slope. We have God's word and we obey God's word every turn we can. But again, does the Bible answer every question? No, it does not. We use it as a guide to give us the wisdom we need. And then we do our best to go where the Spirit leads. And I thank God for people like Elizabeth Elliot who did just that. So what does wisdom look like? It looks like obedience to and a magnification of Christ. That's what it looks like. And this is what Jesus is saying whenever he says, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So how do we live lives wisely? We obey his leading and his command to take the gospel to nations. The wisest thing that we could do is to magnify Christ. In every turn, we magnify Christ. Now it's significant that he says this in the context of John's question in defense of him. I think that's significant and worth pointing out. Even when John had doubts, Jesus defended him because of his obedience and his faithfulness. <laughs> Jesus, instead of saying, yeah, John had questions and he needs to be reprimanded for that. <laughs> Jesus pointed to the many times that John was faithful. And for that reason, he demonstrated wisdom by being obedient to what God, God didn't ask of him, what God commanded of him. He was obedient to that. And Jesus says he was wise because of his actions. That's what Jesus is getting at here. So Jesus teaches, works to declare his identity. Greatness is measured by witness, and wisdom is defined by obedience. So what? So, when we have questions, what do we do? What do we do whenever we don't know? What do we do? Well, the simple answer. I'm going to give you the simplest answer I could possibly give you. It's go to Jesus. What do you do when you have questions, doubts, hard times? Go to Jesus. I've told people before, we serve a big God. He can handle it. Like, where do you go when you have questions? Go to him. He's a big God and he can handle it. So go to God. Go to his word. But recognize that the answer you get may not be the one you expect. <laughs> or it may not even be a direct answer to the question that you're asking. Um, one more One more story. Um, and then I'll, I'll be done. <clears throat> so I, I remember a time that this happened to me. Um, and the question I had came because it was the first time I ever realized my own mortality. Um, now, I'd always known, like, y'all know, people age and at some point we die, right? I hope y'all know that. Like, that's not a big secret. Everybody will die at some point unless Christ returns before. That's true. Okay. And I've always known that. But I remember the day that that truth, that reality, hit me like a ton of bricks. And for the sake of transparency, I, I remember I was driving in the car whenever I was just thinking about things and almost had a mini panic attack as I'm driving down the road. Um, and I didn't, my wife would tell you, I didn't eat for weeks. I couldn't sleep. Um, it consumed my thoughts. I just didn't know what to do with that. And I'd always known it. But for some reason, it just... It, it ate me alive. I could not function. It was the worst few weeks of my life. Um, it was miserable. And I didn't understand. I questioned God. I looked for answers. Um, 
I prayed saying, God, just let me get past this. I said, God, give me an answer. To, like, why am I struggling with this now? Um, and I prayed and I prayed and I didn't seem to get an answer. And I remember whenever I did finally, I, I believe it was God. I, I remember whenever I finally did get an answer, it wasn't the answer I expected. It wasn't even an answer to the question I was asking. Um, but it certainly encompassed the question I was asking. And essentially the answer that I got um, was God reminding me that, Jared, you're alive now. You're alive now. And that because I'm alive, and because he had chosen me, I had a task to accomplish. Um, basically, basically what God said is, Jared, stop worrying about things that I've already taken care of and start doing what I've commanded you to do. In other words, Jared, shut up and get to work. Um, of course, God was a little more gentle than that, but <laughs> that was basically what he said. And the point is, God didn't give me the answer I expected. God didn't give me the answer I expected. Instead of telling me that I was going to live a long life or try to comfort me in some way by saying, Jared, well, it's going to be okay because look at all of these beautiful things around you. God said, Jared, you are alive now. Get to work. Stop worrying about what you have no control over and what I've already taken care of. Get to work. See, oftentimes, instead of giving us the answer, he tells us what we need to know and then demands, not asks, he demands that we trust him. He demands that we trust him. And his works show us that we can trust him. He's shown us that we can trust him again and again. And we need to realize that those questions, they bring us opportunities to magnify him. Both our questions and the questions of others around us give us opportunity to make a lot, a big deal out of who Christ is. We get to witness his life-changing power, his re life-redeeming power. And we have an opportunity to do the wisest thing that we possibly can do and obey God and his word and tell others about him, even in the midst of questions. Not to say that we won't have those questions, because we will. But don't let those questions take you from Christ. But instead, like John does here, let those questions drive you back to Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, I'm, I come to you today as someone who has asked these questions. Um, saying, God, if you really are who you say you are, then where are you now? God, I've certainly asked that question. Um, Lord, and I know this comes in a time in my life and in the lives of many around me where um, those questions would certainly be easy to ask. Um, God, but what I know is that you are not only big enough to answer those questions, you are loving enough and kind enough to be patient with us. Um, so, Lord, for that I thank you. Um, Father, what, I, what I'd like to ask today is that you would... You would give us insight, not necessarily into our circumstances, but into who you are and what you've commanded of us. Uh, Father, and I pray that you would give us the faith to follow after you, even when it's hard, even when we don't understand. Because what we know is greater than what we don't know. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just remind us again that you have saved us from our sin, from eternity in hell, and you have given us life and life everlasting. Um, so, Father, out of a, just out of an abundance of gratitude for that, I pray that we would live lives that magnify you. Um, Father, give us a desire to magnify you. Lord, if there are those in this place today, I pray that you would change their hearts. 
that you would show them who you are, the loving God who met our biggest challenge, that while we were yet sinners, you pursued us. I pray that you would wake them up to that reality. And Father, for those who have known you for years, I pray that you would just use this to drive us back to our our first love, our greatest love, and that is you. Um, So Father, use your word and change us, shape us, and then send us to a world that needs you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.